Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Kevin E. Green. Kevin and I met in Boston last year at the DevSecCon conference where he delivered the keynote talk. He started his security work at Ernst & Young and has throughout his career worked in a variety of leadership roles in both the public and private sectors. Recently, Kevin led Software Assurance R&D at the US Department of Homeland Security where he built the Swamp Software Assurance Marketplace to provide continuous software assurance services to the public. Today, Kevin serves on the advisory board for the New Jersey Institute of Technology Cybersecurity Research Center and Bowie State University's CS department, which led him to his current role at MITRE. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Caroline, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. So, Kevin, you know, one of the things that we try to do on this podcast is take someone like yourself who you know, from the perspective of a more junior security practitioner, or maybe someone who is thinking about getting into the field, someone with your history and your credentials might come off as intimidating. Uh, so what I like to do is try and humanize our guests and just show them that, you know, we're real people. And, and to, that, to that effect, um, I, you know, I noticed that you have a nickname that you use for both your SoundCloud account as well as one of your email addresses. Can you tell me how you came up with the handle Kevtorius? <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting. So I think one of the things I've always said is Kevin Green is a very common name. And I believe around the time I was going to try to register to get an email address and it's like K Green, Kevin dot green and they were all taken. So, so I said, I needed an email that was different, right? Something that no one has or could think of. And this is right around the time when the Taurus, when the notorious BIG was shot and killed and everyone who follows hip hop understands who notorious BIG was. So it was all a dream. That's kind of like, you know, one of his favorite songs. Right. And I can remember my sister calling me, um, one morning, and actually it was my birthday, to tell me that Notorious B.I.G. was shot and killed. He was murdered on my birthday. So if you've seen the movie Top 5 of Chris Rock, you know, where they go and everyone kind of debates who's their top five uh, rap rappers of all time. Well, Notorious B.I.G. is number one on my list. So if you listen to the song, he has a song called Going Back to Cali. And it was on his final uh, studio album, and he has a verse that really stuck with me. And he said, I'm going to spell my name one more time. Check it. It's the N-O-T-O-R-I-O-U-S. Just lay down slow. So that stuck with me and I became Kev Torres. So that's kind of how uh, the Kev Torres name came about. It was something that's catchy and fun. And I always say this is where cyber meets hip hop, right? Where <laughs> so I kind of use that as a, as a, as a, very interesting, funny, funny uh, lead-in uh, with a lot of people that I meet. But I, I like the name Kevtoris. It, it stuck with me, and I just, I just became the persona Kevtoris. 
I love it. I love it. I think it's very distinctive. You know, when I see it, I know it's you. Um, I understand you grew up in Jersey and, and similarly, I noticed that your LinkedIn background graphic says secure coding by nature, which I thought was also a very clever combination of a cybersecurity idea and a hip hop reference. Right. So I always used to tease my colleagues when I was working at DHS, S&T, you know, we need to, we need to figure out where cyber meets hip hop and growing up in Jersey, I grew up around, you know, the early nineties where hip hop was probably at, you know, was in his glory, glory days. So I grew up in East London, New Jersey. I grew up in the same neighborhood as Grammy, Grammy award winning group, Naughty by Nature. Uh, we went to the same middle school, went to the same high school. So Vinny, KG, and Tretch, who are the members of the group Naughty by Nature, those are my homies. Um, so I'm proud of their longstanding success. So it was around the Super Bowl, the last giant Super Bowl run, um, where they beat, I believe they beat the, uh, the New England Patriots. And I saw these t-shirts, this is Giants by Nature. I said, wow, I think this is a really cool idea. So I wanted something to grab people's attention. So I decided to do something uh, around secure coding by nature as a meme, but more importantly, to raise the awareness and promote secure coding practices. Uh, we see code.org and all these coding communities popping up. I think it's very important to emphasize early the need for good coding practices. So I kind of um, want to use that as a way to kind of bring more awareness around the need to, to not only code, but secure, do, do it in a secure fashion. Awesome. Awesome. Kevin, tell me, how did you get started working in security? So right after undergrad, I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology. So right after undergrad, I was, uh, I got a job with Bell Atlantic at the time. It's now Verizon, but back then it was called Bell Atlantic. So it tells you how old I am, <laughs> sort of. And um, they moved me down to Maryland to work. Um, I would work a full shift go home and study and do homework. Cause at the time I was doing distance learning for my masters across the street out of distance learning. So anytime, you know, I would get off work, I would go, if I didn't have class, I would go home and study, do homework. And then doing the change control windows, I would come back and watch the security engineers do firewall updates, update the firewall policy. And eventually I got a job within Bell Atlantic supporting firewall. So that's kind of how I initially started doing the security stuff, um, and you know, doing firewalls. And then I went on to EMI as a senior consultant doing pen testing and vulnerability assessment. So around that time when I was at EMI, um, Stuart McClure, who, who is the CEO at uh, Silence, George Kurtz, who's the CEO at CrowdStrike, as well as the Foundstone guys, we, we were all at EMI at the same time. I always tease Chris Wysopel, uh, I interviewed him on my podcast a while back, and I always say, well, who has the most branches on the trees? Is it the Loft group or is, the, is it the E&Y group? Uh, because, you know, if you look at it, if someone was to dissect each tree, you would see that, you know, there's a lot of contributions that came out of the E&Y family as well as the Loft family. So at the E&Y, I went on to work for a managed security service provider where we managed firewalls for a company that was in Northern Virginia called PSINet. And then eventually I went off to do more consulting work in industry uh, as a government contractor and then supporting other small security boutiques. So that's kind of how my, my background started in cyber 
Uh, I've always prided myself on being well-rounded and being able to cover a number of things uh, because you never know what you run into when you go into a client site. And so you, a client site, and you always want to, well, I believe I should say, you, you want to add value wherever you go and be a leader. So I kind of pride myself on being a consultant and really, you know, coming out of the, the E&Y family and, that, and all the things that I've learned at E&Y. Um, so I, that's kind of how I started and, and never looked back and really tried to pattern my career around those things that I think was important, but really follow my passion. My passion is cybersecurity, um, but of late, you know, obviously I morphed into doing more on the software assurance and software security side. So very cool. I, I think it would be super interesting one day if someone were to create an infographic, like, you know, for these, you know, software security, really information security consultancies in the 90s, Foundstone, At Stake, Loft Group, EY, like, where did each of these folks end up? I think that'd be so interesting. Um, and Kevin, you're one of the folks, you're actually our first guest on the podcast who has experience working in the federal government. Uh, so far, all the folks that I've interviewed uh, for this show are, on, are in, the uh, in the private sector side. Uh, so I'm curious to know, what do you think is the different, what do you think is, um, sorry, let me rephrase that. How do you think the federal government sees cybersecurity and the way that it affects our country? So I had a very unique advantage working in the public sector, both as a contractor and as a federal employee. I think so much of the federal approach uh, to cyber is really heavily driven by FISMA compliance. And typically budgets are somewhat influenced um, by FISMA compliance. So it's a huge driver, as you see. And so much of the agencies struggle, so many agencies, I should say, struggle to do the basic hygiene because they are so focused on the whole FISMA compliance thing. So obviously it takes a lot to really uh, you know, be in a government and really try to meet the compliance because obviously if your budget is tied to certain requirements as it relates to FISMA and OMB guidance, you have to comply with these things. Uh, you can see one of the things I've always say, you can be compliant, but not secure. You know, as we've seen with some of the breaches from the past, like Target and OPM, uh, all of them were, well, each one of those, and to, to name a few, Target was PCI compliant and OPM was compliant. So it's really about striking the right balance between security and compliance that I see as a, as a key difference between public and private sector. The other aspect I see difference in the government is the government is not as forward-leaning as industry and are often slower to adopt emerging technologies. And I'll give you an example. I had an interview with, with Aetna CISO, Jim Roth, and he indicated that Aetna developed a model-driven security approach, which infused some AI capabilities to help predict and be proactive in terms of their security controls. In the public sector, most agencies wouldn't even consider this unless it was mandated by FISMA or some other federal guidance. So I see this as one of the fundamental differences between public and private sector. Yeah, you know, I I have my own opinions and perspective on sort of compliance and security and where, you know, between those two, sometimes there can be a gap. Kevin, 
why do you think compliance frameworks occasionally fail to include some of the security basics that are really important? You know, why, why is there a gap? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of different reasons. One is, you know, what are you protecting? Not all, not, you know, it's not a one size fits all. So certain things may be important to me in terms of, you know, I, you know, I may have a certain data classification. I may need to protect certain data, maybe confidentiality may be important to someone else or availability. So from a screen perspective, I think there's certain requirements that are different and it's hard to create any framework to be everything to everyone and meet their specific mission needs. So from that standpoint, one of the biggest things is, is really taking a framework and being able to tailor it to meet your mission needs. And I think that uh, in itself is some of the, the struggles that organizations face is really understanding how to tailor specific frameworks or compliance frameworks into a actual policy that allows them to be compliant but also embed some of the necessary security hygiene things and security controls that are so essential to protect key critical assets in the organization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, that every organization has unique requirements and that the folks, whoever it is that's coming up with the compliance framework, they've got a responsibility to sort of balance between something which is extremely comprehensive and at the same time, something that's possible, you know, something that's simple enough uh, for folks to understand and to really implement. But also, Caroline, like if you put five engineers or security testers in a, in a room, they all may interpret certain requirements differently and certain security controls differently or how to test certain things. There's certain expertise across all five of those security testers and engineers. So, you know, a lot of it is also in terms of how we interpret federal compliance standards and also how we test, go about testing uh, whether or not control meets a specific requirement or not. Yeah. You know, Kevin, you mentioned that from your perspective, sometimes the private sector seems more willing to try out some new and emerging technology, um, whereas the the public sector uh, might be a bit slower to, for a variety of reasons. One of the things that you worked on at DHS is something called Swamp, and in fact, also something called Swamp in a Box. Now, from my perspective, that is a very cool example of emerging technology where you were able to actually create something and then make those services publicly available. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? I arrived at DHS August of, the, of 2012, so I began um, working on the swamp. And one of the unique things I've always say about the swamp is it, it lowers the bar for organizations to formalize software assurance practices and activities in their environment. What I mean by that is oftentimes folks who are doing software development are asked to do more with less and acquiring tools and practices or understanding or, or getting the expertise to understand how to calibrate and configure these tools can not only be expensive, but very time consuming. And the one of the unique value propositions of the swamp is the swamp team does all the plumbing for you. There's an array of 30 plus open source tools. 
And they, they've created a, a very interesting workflow that allows you to bring together multiple tools to try to increase the, the attack surface uh, with some of these static analysis tools. So one of the things we do know uh, that each tool has a strength. And one of the things the Swamp is designed to do is really amplify the strength of each tool in a way to help one, reduce false positives, but also provide better assurances that, you know, we can detect these, that we can detect weaknesses uh, that actually exist in your software, increasing the integrity of using these tools. So that's one of the unique value propositions. And the other thing is when I was at DHS, uh, one of the unique things I wanted to do was partner with industry and some commercial tool vendors like Parasoft, Grammatech at the time, it was a it was a company called Red Lizards, which has now since been acquired uh, by Son by uh, Synopsys. So they are all partners in the swamp. And one of the things that I think is very important to to realize and point out is it provides it realized the importance of and the reliance of open source software, and it's providing open source project owners a way to use multiple tools to look for potential weaknesses that can expose vulnerabilities in software. And one of the things I've always said, if you notice, you know, in my talk at DevSecCon is, is that we need to improve the tools. And one of the unique values propositions for the Swamp is, it's a collaborative research environment where tool vendors can bring their tools and test their tools across a wide range of software packages, test cases. Right now, the Juliet test cases are in there. Uh, before I left DHS, I initiated a project called Stamp Static Tool Analysis Modernization Project. Those test cases will be in there. So it exposes tools to a wide range of software, whether, you know, range from different levels of complexity that gives tool vendors a way to test and figure out where the coverage gaps in their tools so they can improve their tools. So the Swamp serves as a very unique capability. And since then, we've created Swamp in the Box. Uh, and Swamp in the Box is, is a capability that can be deployed behind a corporate firewall that seamlessly integrate into any CI CD pipeline. That's so cool. And, you know, Kevin, one of the things you mentioned, you said every tool is going to have strengths and it's going to have weaknesses. Uh, and it seems to me, you know, you have particular expertise and familiarity with static analysis. Can you give me and our listeners a sense of, you know, for static analysis tools in general, you know, I'm not asking you to call anyone in particular out, but what are your thoughts on some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of that particular defect discovery method? So one of the interesting things is, is that I work with both folks in industry, academia, I've used these tools in various spots of my career. And one of the things that we have to be honest about is that there is no Uber tool. There's is not a tool that's going to cover all programming languages, all the different weakness classes, and to, and to assume that or to articulate that to customers, that's just not being realistic. So one of the things I've always asked myself and one of the things I've always asked my researchers and performers is if you know one of one of the state of practice capabilities that is being used is the Juliet test cases, which are synthetic, plastic test cases, and the funny thing is none of the tools scores well on Juliet. By and large, whether it's open source or commercial tools, and I've always asked myself, well, if they're synthetic and simplistic, why are the tools not scoring well, right? 
the question becomes, so are static analysis tools better at more complex software? Or can we make assumptions that because they are simplistic and don't represent real world programs, that the tools are not calibrated to look for these type of issues in software? So one of the things I would like to see is we need more partnerships and collaborations. And that's why things like CodeDX and Denim Groups, ThreatFix are very important because now you can use multiple tools and stitch together tools and really highlight the strengths of tools as opposed to use a single tool and think the tool is going to give you all the visibility you need to find potential weaknesses that can expose vulnerabilities in software. One of the things we did see with Heartbleed, Heartbleed was really an eye-opener for me because none of the static analysis tools were able to detect the actual weaknesses, the actual weakness that exposed the Heartbleed vulnerability. A lot of times when a tool oversimplifies, it misses things. And that lies one of the fundamental problems with static analysis. We just need better capabilities. We need to start looking at AI. How do, how do we infuse AI with static analysis to make tools more smarter, more intelligent, and really do a better job at doing static analysis early? You know, one of the things that we see with the whole DevOps movement is a lot of folks complain about the tools clog up the CID pipeline. And one of the things I think makes important is to start figuring out how do we make the tools smarter by leveraging things like threat modeling that can potentially guide stack analysis into areas that we know there are potential issues and only focus on those issues that we've known are significant in that particular area. So we, we will be seeing some changes in our, our project with static analysis. Hopefully we have more innovation, some more forward-leaning capabilities in the area. Cool. Yeah, you know, to me, it, it, it seems that, of course, any sort of software program, you know, static analysis at, at the end of the day is a software program, you know, it's going to do what it's told to do. Uh, it's not going to look for anything it's not told to look for, you know, so I think, you know, an organization could be really uh, detail oriented and really comprehensive uh, and then have a situation where maybe there's a lot of false positives and, and those have to sort of be removed, you know, but on the other hand, if, if they're, you know, cutting out or filtering too much, uh, then, then you might have a false negative problem. And I, it seems to me that's sort of just, you know, inherent uh, with sort of the traditional way that, that static analysis tools work. Right. And just think about it. I mean, software has evolved over the last 20 something years. Software systems are larger and more complex. There are additional programming languages like the dynamic programming languages like Python and JavaScript. And it, it really puts a uh, strain on innovation because I don't think we, we are moving or innovating fast enough to deal with the evolution of software. And that has been a significant problem for a long time. And hopefully at some point, you know, we begin to start looking for different approaches, uh, invest more in R&D, uh, and leverage something like threat modeling. It can be a very, very super powerful capability that can provide insight to these tools to make the tools smarter and, and perform better. So that's what I'm looking for. And, and I think with some of the initial research that I funded at DHS, it did provide some initial breakthroughs in terms of areas that we think make sense to focus on that can really push forward the state of the art. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting to see, I think, what happens in the next decade or so. Kevin, you know, 
I actually can't believe how quickly the time has passed um, as we've just had our conversation here. Um, I've got one more question for you, which is you spent a lot of time thinking about software security, software assurance, and most recently you've been evangelizing secure DevOps processes. Can you maybe leave our listeners with a few final points? Um, you know, what I'm thinking of is you shared a, a top 10 uh, at DevSecCon, but you know, three things that, three key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with today. You know, the whole, the whole phenomena about shifting left and what does that mean? You know, I, I personally believe that means we have to move past continuous integration and continuous delivery all the way into the requirements phase so that we can get folks thinking about security from the onset, right? Shifting left is more than a catchy phrase. It needs to be a mindset where everyone thinks about security in all phases of the software development lifecycle. And one of the things we could do is, you know, there's so much that we learn from building, fixing, breaking, and designing software uh, that are part of our intellectual experiences. Our intuition is nothing more than the outcomes that we've, that we've seen and learned from earlier intellectual experiences, right? So the concept of codifying your intuition uh, was something that I got from a computer science professor at Georgia Tech, where he was talking in a video that was hosted by Microsoft about, a, about what can security learn from AI and how this learning can bolster AI to combat adversarial activity. And I was like, wow, why can't we take that same concept and move it into the software development process where everyone can think about security and what it really means to shift left, right? And think about it in all phases of the software development life cycle. So anytime a new feature or functionality needs, or needs to be added or defined, the entire team is thinking about ways those features and functionality can be attacked and abused. So those are my things I think are important to kind of uh, think about as it relates to the whole DevOps movement and really trying to uh, make it more than just testing automation, but make it, make it to a point where it's a, you know, well, security is a mindset as opposed to an ad hoc activity. Fantastic. Kevin, I'm so glad we met last year in Boston and I've really enjoyed all of our conversations since that time. And thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's been a pleasure. And hopefully we can hook up and do some more things uh, in 2019 or even later in this year. I'm looking forward to it. I hope so too. Thanks again. All right. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.